Part two, chapter nine of Recollections of the Revolution and the Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Return to Paris. The summer of seventeen ninety nine passed without anything unusual. Lady Jerningham was again settled at Cossey, where she had invited me to rejoin her and pass the six months of her sojourn in the country. The lease of our house at Richmond, which she had taken for us, was on the point of expiring, and it would have been hardly considerate on our part to ask her to renew it, with the view of not accepting the hospitality which she had offered us. My aunt was alone at Cossey. Her niece, Fanny Dillon, my cousin, whom she had brought up, had just married Sir Thomas Webb, a Catholic baronet, who was quite an ordinary man, although very well born. Her eldest son, George Jerningham, had also married a Miss Sulliard, a very beautiful young lady belonging to an old and noble Catholic family. William Jerningham was in Germany. Her favourite son, Edward, had not left her, and that was all that was necessary. Under these circumstances, it would have been a real disgrace for us not to go to Cossy. We were making our preparations accordingly to set out, when there arrived the news of the unexpected return from Egypt of General Bonaparte, who had landed at Fréjus. On learning of this event, we left at once for Cossy with the hope of being able soon to go over to the continent and perhaps to return to France. It was during our sojourn there that we received the happy news of the fall of the Directory and of the revolution of 18 Brumaire. Some time later, we received letters from Monsieur de Brocan and our brother-in-law, the Marquis de Lamette, urging us to return to France by way of Holland, with German passports. Lady Jerningham proposed that my husband should leave alone. This would perhaps have been better on account of the state of my health, but no consideration could determine me to be separated from my husband for an indefinite time. The communications between England and France in time of war might be entirely interrupted. The news which we received from Hamburg was often a month old. So we rejected all the propositions of Lady Jerningham. A Danish passport was sent from London for my husband, my children and myself. We set out for Yarmouth with the idea of taking passage on a packet of the Royal Navy. At this time, there were no steamboats. Our wait at Yarmouth was prolonged during the whole month of December. We did not dare to return to Cossey, although the distance was only 18 miles, as the captain had declared that as soon as the wind became favourable, that is to say from the southeast, he would sail immediately. He would hardly consent to let us remain on land, as he was in such haste to leave as soon as possible. Every courier brought dispatches from the government. Never had I passed such tedious days as during the month we were at Yarmouth. We were living in a very poor lodging with two rooms. We were not able to go out, for the weather was frightful. The contrary winds blew with fury. Every day the reports of vessels which had been lost. You can imagine how such news was of a nature to discourage persons who might be called upon to embark at any moment. Finally, one morning, they came to inform us that it was necessary to go on board. 
where our baggage had been already for a long time. Hardly had we set foot on deck when the anchor was lifted. The sea was very rough and we had a very disagreeable passage which lasted 48 hours. About the middle of the second night we were for some hours uncertain as to whether or not we might be left on Heligoland, a little island off the mouth of the Elbe, in case the current did not loosen the ice. The captain subsequently declared that on account of the violent weather, if the wind had veered a single point to the north, he would have been forced to return to England without attempting to land. Fortunately, we escaped both of these eventualities. After having passed the island of Heligoland, we entered the Elbe and moored in the offing of the little port of Cuxhaven, which we did not enter. The captain was in haste to be relieved of his passengers. Everything was thrown pell-mell into the longboat. My husband and my maid left with my son. As for myself, the captain, on account of the state of my health, put me with my little girl in his private boat and ordered the two sailors to land me as near as possible to the city. This injunction was nearly fatal to me. The tide being low, when we came alongside the jetty, I found much difficulty in landing. The two sailors seized me then by the wrists, and in spite of the motion of the boat, they would not let go, fortunately, for I certainly should have fallen into the sea. Then they hoisted me on the jetty in such a manner that for several moments I was suspended by the arms. They left me then alone with my little Charlotte. Although I was feeling very ill, I was forced, nevertheless, to set out to meet my husband, whom I perceived at a distance in a small wagon in which were our baggage and my maid. I felt a violent pain in my right side, and I have always thought since that I suffered some internal injury. We were obliged to knock at the door of two or three inns without being able to find a lodging on account of the number of emigres who were leaving for or arriving from England. Finally, we succeeded in persuading one innkeeper to give us temporary quarters. A few moments later, I was taken with a violent fever and was out of my head. My husband, who was very anxious, sent for a doctor. After a long search, they brought back one who did not speak a word of French. He applied a plaster to my side and ordered me a calming draught, which caused me to sleep continuously for twenty-four hours. On waking up, I felt all right again. While I was asleep, my husband had purchased for two hundred francs a little old caleche, which was sufficiently spacious to contain us all. After a second day of repose, we set out in this open carriage in the month of January in the north of Germany. Fortunately, the weather was favourable the first days of our journey. The fourth day, a torrential rain did not cease to fall. Marguerite and I were somewhat protected by the back of the caleche, but my husband and my son, in spite of an umbrella, were wet to the skin. We remained two days at Bremen to dry our clothes behind the fine large stoves which you find in the German houses, and also to obtain a little repose. Then the weather became fine and we again set out. Much snow had fallen, and it was difficult to distinguish the route in the plains of heather which we were traversing. 
Towards evening, we arrived at the little city of Wildeshausen, where we were to pass the night. It was situated in the electorate of Hanover, and had consequently a Hanoverian garrison. The officers that day were giving a great ball to another regiment which was passing through. All the rooms of the only inn in the locality were occupied. We found refuge in the vestibule near the stove, and were very sad over the prospect of passing the night upon the wooden benches, when an officer all dressed for the ball came gallantly to say to me in English that, as he was to pass the whole night at the ball, he would place his room at my disposal. There we went for supper. A little later I was taken very ill, and the proprietor of the hotel sent a messenger to the end of the city to awaken an old hairdresser, a Frenchman by origin who had been settled at Wildeshausen since the Seven Years' War. He arrived very promptly, as he had not yet gone to bed on account of the ball. His first care was to run in search of a physician who lived in the vicinity. The doctor, an elegant young man, arrived wearing white gloves. He had left the ball, and was still out of breath from his last waltz. His acquaintance with the French language comprised only several medical phrases. The old perruquier, Denis, fortunately came to our rescue to explain the nature of my malady. He asked if I could be transported without trouble to two rooms which he knew were to let at the end of the city. The doctor consented, and then returned to the ball. Denis ran to awaken the proprietor of these rooms, and before daybreak I was settled there. The house, like all those of the prosperous peasants of this part of Germany, had a large porte-cochere by which you entered a large carriage-house, which occupied the whole depth of the house. In front, at right and left of this carriage-house on the ground floor, were two good rooms, very neat and quite well furnished. Marguerite and my two children took one, while I was placed in the larger room, and my husband took possession of a small cabinet adjoining. The following morning, the 13th of February, 1800, was born my little girl, to whom we gave the name of Cécile. The following day, the bailiff of the locality, who had already sent once in search of our passport, dispatched one of the village guards to lead Monsieur de la Tour du Pin to him. He said to my husband in good French, So your Danish passport is under a false name. You are French and an emigre. And in the electorate of Hanover, where you are now, it is forbidden to allow the sojourn of French emigres more than 48 hours. My husband was terrified by this discourse. He alleged that I was not in a state to be transported. But the bailiff was inflexible as to the departure of my husband and declared that before the end of the day he must take his choice between leaving for Hanover and returning to Bremen. Then he added, Sir, since you acknowledge that you are French, let me know your real name. La Tour du Pain. Ha, mon Dieu, cried the bailiff. Are you the former minister of France to the Hague? Exactly. Well, sir, if this is so, remain here as long as you wish. My nephew, Monsieur Inuba, a very young man, 
was Minister of Hanover at The Hague. He often visited your house, and you were very kind to him. From this moment, he placed himself at our disposal with the greatest zeal. In two weeks, I was up again, and at the end of another week, we set out, after having taken tea with the bailiff, the burgomaster, and the curate. As there was a Catholic church at Wildeshausen, my little daughter was baptised there. She was held at the font by the old perruquier and his wife, who during the forty years of their marriage had never learned a word of French. We took the route of Lingen to enter Holland. For several leagues we were accompanied by a number of young men. Before leaving, they insisted that I should drink a cup of a German mixture of which they had prepared the ingredients. I thought it would be detestable, but nevertheless, after having tasted it, I found the beverage delicious. It was composed of warm Bordeaux wine in which they had put yolks of eggs and spices. The doctor was among those who had accompanied me, and it was by his advice that I swallowed this mixture, which somewhat inebriated me. The worthy fellows of our escort then left us and wished us with fervour a bon voyage. Their wish brought us good fortune, for nothing troublesome happened, and my little girl endured the trip in an astonishing manner for a baby who was not a month old. We finally arrived at Utrecht, and my husband went at once to The Hague in order to obtain a passport en règle from the ambassador of the French Republic, Monsieur de Semonville. The latter, who turned with each wind which blew, had already succeeded in pleasing the new government of which Bonaparte was the head. My husband had known Monsieur de Semonville very intimately for a long time, so he was received with open arms, and they fabricated for him a superb passport, attesting that he had not left Utrecht since the 1850-door. During the short absence of Monsieur de la Tourupin, Madame Denis, by the merest chance, passed through Utrecht, and my husband was very much surprised to find his aunt on his return from his trip to The Hague. I think that Madame Denis was on her way to see Monsieur de Lafayette, who had been living at Vianen near Utrecht since his release from prison, after the peace of Campo Formio. I do not recall whether she had come from France or England. She always had two or three passports, and changed her name and her route at every moment. We remained two days with her, and then, taking advantage of a carriage which was being sent to Paris, and which we were charged to deliver at its destination, we set out. On arriving at Paris, we stopped at the Hôtel Grange Batelière. My brother-in-law Lamette and our friend Bruquin were at Paris. Monsieur de Lamette installed us in a charming little house, entirely furnished, Rue de Miramenie, which had been occupied prior to that by two or three friends, who had just left to go and pass the whole summer in the country. We were predestined to live in the houses of courtesans. That at Richmond belonged to an actress. This one had been arranged for Mademoiselle Michelot, former mistress of the Duc de Bourbon. All the walls were ornamented with mirrors with such prodigality that I was obliged to hang pieces of muslin to conceal the greater part of them, 
and I was much annoyed at not being able to move without encountering my form reflected from head to foot. At Paris, I found many persons of my acquaintance who had already returned from the emigration. All the young people from this moment turned their eyes towards the rising sun, Madame Bonaparte, who was installed at the Tuileries, where the apartments had been entirely refurnished as if by enchantment. She already put on the airs of a queen, but of a queen the most gracious, the most amiable, the most kind-hearted. Although she had very little intelligence, she had nevertheless well penetrated the projects of her husband. The first consul had given his wife the mission of bringing to him la haute société, having been persuaded by Josephine that she belonged to it, which was not strictly true. I do not know whether she had ever been presented at court or visited at Versailles, but thanks to the name of her first husband, Monsieur de Beauharnais, the thing was certainly possible. During the years 1787 to 1791, I met Monsieur de Beauharnais constantly in society. As he had seen my husband frequently when he was aide-de-camp of Monsieur de Bouille during the war in America, Monsieur de Beauharnais said to him one day, Come and see me, so that I may present you to my wife. My husband went there once, but never went again. The society which met in their salon was not ours. Monsieur de Beauharnais nevertheless went everywhere, for during the war he had formed ties with a number of leaders of high society. He had a charming figure and had the reputation justly of being the finest dancer in Paris. I had often danced with him, and I therefore experienced a very painful feeling when I heard of his death on the scaffold. I again saw Monsieur de Talleyrand, who was always animated by the same sentiments towards me, amiable, without being really useful. During the past two years he had worked so successfully at increasing his fortune that I found him settled in a beautiful house, his personal property, in the Rue d'Anjou. He laughed in his sleeve at the disposition on the part of all those who had returned to France to rally to the government. He said to me, Que fait Gouverne, veut-il quelque chose? Non, I replied, nous comptons aller nous installer à Bouille. Tant pis, he exclaimed, c'est une bêtise. Mais, I replied, nous ne sommes pas en état de rester à Paris. Pah, he said, on a toujours de l'argent quand on veut. Voilà l'homme. As soon as Madame Bonaparte learned, through Madame de Valence and Madame de Montesson, of my presence in Paris, she wished to come and see me. To draw to her a woman still young, a former lady of honour, very much in vogue, would be a conquest, if I dare say so, of which she was very impatient to boast to the first consul. In order to give value to my condescension, I allowed myself to be implored a little. Then, one morning, I went with Madame de Valence to call on Madame Bonaparte. I found in the salon a number of ladies and a group of young men, all of whom I knew. Madame Bonaparte came to me crying, Ah, la voila! 
she seated me beside her and said a thousand pleasant things repeating all the time comme elle l'air anglais which ceased to be a praiseworthy tray a short time later she examined me from head to foot and her attention was particularly drawn to a tress of blonde hair which surrounded my head and from which her eyes could not be drawn as we rose to leave she could not refrain from demanding in a low tone of madame de valence if this tress was indeed my own hair madame bonaparte spoke to me with much kindness of madame dillon my stepmother and expressed a warm desire to make the acquaintance of my sister fanny who was at the same time her cousin the mother of madame dillon and of josephine having been sisters then she continued by saying all the emigres were going to return and that she was charmed and that they had suffered enough and that general bonaparte wished above everything else to bring to an end the evils of the revolution and so on in short a lot of reassuring statements she also asked for news of monsieur de la tour du pin and evinced a desire of seeing him she was leaving for ma maison and invited me to come there she was very pleasant in every way and i saw clearly that the first consul had entrusted to her the department of the ladies of the court and the task of their conquest when she met them the task was not very difficult for all were rushing towards the rising power and i do not know anyone except myself who refused to be lady of honour to the empress josephine monsieur de la tour du pin and i had never been inscribed i cannot explain why upon the list of emigres it was necessary however for us to obtain a certificate of residence in france signed by nine witnesses an indispensable formality of which nevertheless no one was dupe with this end we went to the municipality of the quarter with our squad of witnesses when the certificate was signed and clothed with all the necessary mensonges the mayor said to me in a low tone that does not prevent you from bringing from london all your effects then he began to laugh what a comedy the place in paris during this summer where the most distinguished company was brought together was under the arch of a house in the place de vendome that which forms the angle of the place on the right in going towards the rue saint honore and on the side of that street it was there that the commission of the emigres held its sessions a tribunal very easy to conciliate if you did not come with empty hands in the crowds which assembled at this point you met the greatest personages mingled with brokers of every kind the french find amusement in everything the commission of emigres had become a place of reunions people made appointments there they went there to meet former acquaintances to talk over their plans their choice of residence many of those who came back considered the place as an employment bureau we had no business with this commission as we did not figure on the list of emigres it was necessary however to have erased from this list the name of my mother-in-law although she had resided for thirty years 
in the convent of the Dame Anglaise of the Rue des Fossés Saint-Victor, which he had never left, they had nevertheless inscribed her name. The sale of all the furniture of the Chateau of Tesson and of the two farmhouses had been the consequence of this unjustifiable inscription. One morning I went to Malmaison. It was after the Battle of Marengo. Madame Bonaparte gave me a wonderful reception, and after luncheon, which was served in a charming salle à manger, she invited me to see her picture gallery. We were alone, and she took advantage of the occasion to tell me the story of the origin of the masterpieces which the gallery contained. This fine picture had been presented to her by the Pope. Two others had been given her by Canova. The city of Milan had offered her this picture and that. Having a great admiration for the conqueror of Marengo, I should have esteemed Madame Bonaparte more highly if she had told me that all these masterpieces had been conquered at the point of his sword. The good woman was naturally a liar. Even when the simple truth would have been more interesting and more piquant than a lie, she would have preferred to lie. Madame de Stael had given up her house. Her husband had returned to Sweden, where he died two years later. After having settled in a small apartment, she was preparing to go to join her father at Coppe. Bonaparte could not endure her, though she tried in every way to please him. I think that she never went to see Madame Bonaparte. One day, however, I met Josephine Bonaparte in her salon. She received people of all the regimes. The émigrés returned to France, mingled at her house with the former partisans of the directory. End of part two, chapter nine.